Welcome to Ana Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features Nay, a writer and activist from Myanmar who shares his story with us and offers a thoughtful and insightful perspective on Myanmar's current situation and its future. Let's start the conversation. So, Nay, I mean, the, the first time I met you, you had just stolen your neighbor's lunch or dinner, was it? Yes, yes. I, 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 <laughs> the, the, I love that story. Should I, should I, should I retell the story again? Just retell the story sake. for Ruth. Yeah. Okay, so, so um, they, I, I've been, I, I, that, that day I had just, we had just ordered lunch and like me and my uh, partner, we, we were both like in this like state, you know, like before, right, like before a meal. And you're just like hungry and you're tired and you just want to eat. So she was just really upset at just being like a person at that moment. And I was like in that state too. And we were just wondering like, what, what can we do? What can we do? And I was supposed to jump on this thing with you guys. So I was just like, let's just order something. And they were supposed to arrive. And um, they, we, we live at like the end of this like apartment, like um uh, complex and so it's difficult for the delivery people to like sort of understand where we are so they always um call us and say like this is where we are this is where we are but at this in this particular instance they didn't call us and i just like decided okay i checked the tracker and everything i just went down i'm like okay things are done and then i see the guy come and i've met him before because like we usually order like once a week or whatever and he just like sees me and he's just like hey man i'm like hey nice to see you and he just hands it to me and i take it and I'm like, this is great. But when I, when I actually like took the packet, something felt off because we had ordered, um, we had ordered these rice bowls, but if it felt hot, you know, like it felt heavy and there was this weight to it that I wasn't used to, but I just like walked away and then I turned around and his like motorcycle was like down the street or whatever. And then I looked inside and it was like burgers and we had ordered these like rice bowls. And I looked at the ticket and it said like Clara something. And I don't know any Clara like living in this apartment building. So I just was like looking left and looking right, just like waiting for someone to like come down, but no one did. And then the other guy came and gave me like my food. So we have now have like, two packets and i'm just like standing in the middle of this parking lot just being like i'm starving but i also don't want to like steal someone's like dinner so i was just waiting there for like maybe 10 or 15 minutes and then finally no one came so it's just I, we had extra burgers <laughs> burgers and rice <laughs> burgers and rice it's just so ridiculous i've never stolen anyone's food before it's just <laughs> i'm just not that type of person i don't know what to tell you but <laughs> it's just the crazy that's good to know we're in good company that yeah unintentionally (laughs) stealing food and pleasantly i mean like it turns out like i really like these burgers so i've actually been like (laughs) reordering them from this one place again but like it was just it was an elaborate marketing scheme (laughs) yeah by pure chance you know like it's a it's a very expensive marketing scheme though yeah that's true you're losing a lot of food And Nay, how did you end up in France? Like where, tell us your story from Myanmar and how long, you know, you lived there and everything. Yeah, so uh, I was born and raised in uh, Yangon um, in um, just, 
in, in San Chan, basically, I, I lived there like my entire life until I was 18. And then uh, I had applied to go to the United States for my undergraduate study. So um, I went to an international school. And that's why I sound like I'm, I'm not from Myanmar. That's it's it's um, there. There's no accent, basically. It's and that's because like I grew up around people who spoke English like my entire life. Um, and it, English was like the main language in which I, I did my studies and like consumed media, um, learned, learned how to uh, basically do everything right. Like through English. Um, so I went to the United States. It di- didn't feel like a transition in the beginning. Um, but, um, I think after a year, you begin to slowly realize that the United States, the, the sort of uh, environment that it is, it, 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 um, puts you in puts you in a category. I, I think, I think that's the, that's the main thing that I felt. Um, so I had to get used to that for the next three years, but the first year it was very, it was, it was very relaxed because, um, I, I felt like I could engage with like the people around me in, in a sort of like surface level, superficial way, very easily. And it felt very easy. But, um, after, after being there for three or four years, I, I came back to uh, Myanmar and I started working, uh, started looking for a job and didn't really find anything that I was interested in. I had studied like urban studies and history in, um, in my, in, for my undergraduate studies. And I didn't really find like any internships at that time related to that. So I started doing translation work and uh, this, uh, what you call stringing in, in journalism, which is basically you do all the, you do the legwork for foreign journalists right like because they don't speak the language but they have the connections to outside um to international publications so i started stringing for my um my editor um, at coconut siangan and um he uh, he kind of took me under his wing and he he taught me like the ropes about how to how to be a journalist and how to like ask the right questions the sort of like storytelling aspect of uh, of of um uh, telling looking how having a good eye for a story right i think that's the main thing that he taught me and uh he i think maybe a couple of weeks after i started working with him he wondered whether or not i wanted to write a story and i just kind of started doing that and uh, it felt it felt very good to be doing something that i i felt was contributing to the conversation uh, that was happening in myanmar um it was a very exciting time because uh I wasn't in the country um, from 2013 to 2016-17, and that was the biggest period of change in the country. So I had felt like I was looking from the outside in at all these like different amazing changes that was happening. Each year that I came back to visit uh, Myanmar, I could see like a new building go up or like a new overpass or all these different aspects of life that were like changing, right? So to be able to report on these new changes um, when I came back, it felt like a great way for me to like enter back into um, what was happening in the country. So it was also quite interesting too, because um, it was right around the time when the, the Rohingya genocide had happened and the backlash against like uh, media organizations and, the general backlash against Muslims was happening as well. Um, my fam- my family is Chinese Muslim, so um, I grew up in these communities. I was uh, I went to mosques every Friday. Um, my family is very religious, um, and I was raised to be that way. Um, so to to 
because also because of the way that I look, I don't present um, as if you want to put like a quote unquote label on it. I don't present Muslim in this in this sort of sense that you would say in Myanmar, right? When when you go down the street, people aren't going to code me as someone who is Muslim. So there's a there was a sort of double way in which I experienced this in the sense that I could see what was going on and I could see in the community the sort of conversations that they were having. But also at the same time, when I walked down the street, I didn't experience any of that myself, right? Like I, me and my family didn't experience any of that ourselves. So the, that, all of that, all of these experiences informed um, who, like how I wanted to tell these stories and like the types, the types of stories that I really wanted to focus on. Um, the, the two journalists, the Reuters journalists who were, um, who were on trial at the time, that was one of the main stories that we had covered through all throughout, uh, my, my time working for Coconuts Yangon and, uh, me and my editor, we had worked on a couple of those. Um, uh, another story that we were very proud of was, um, this the the leader and founder of this NGO who was accused of sexual assault by uh, several of his like uh, um, subordinates and he, he uh, his organization had received like funding from like multiple U.S. like um, aid organizations as well and the the largest story was that basically all all these organizations had sort of brushed aside these complaints that were levied against him for multiple years until these women came, um, came forward publicly on Facebook. So it's a lot of, it was a lot of these types of stories that we really wanted to highlight because Myanmar was going through something that is difficult to describe even in retrospect, because in real time, it was such a whiplash to go from having no internet whatsoever to everyone having a voice right and to to really reckon with what that means even with the most extreme elements of our society i think we are still dealing with the consequences of that because um a lot of a lot of the uh, optimism and the potential that we felt right now seems seems to be uh i don't know how to i don't know how to exactly put this into words but it seems to be overstated, right? Like we, we were in this, we're in this like position looking back now when, now, now when we actually know that we were all sort of dis, like we were all under some sort of spell. We, we all felt like things were going fine, but in fact they were really not. And there was this rot that was underneath the real like democratic transition. Um, so after after I had like worked for Coconut Siangon, my my partner and I we had met in the United States and um, we had been trying to be in one place for a long time and we decided that France was going to be the place that we wanted to settle in. So we, I had been working for a long, long time trying to get here um, and it finally worked out right before coronavirus. So after coronavirus, I had uh, uh, right in the middle of the pandemic, I had moved here in July 2020 and uh, that was right before the coup and I had stopped writing then and when I arrived here in um, when I arrived here my main goal was to learn the language and maybe learn how to cook that was that was like basically 
all that I really wanted to do. But then after the coup happened, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't really think about anything else. And this was one of the main things that I wanted to do was to, I, I don't know. I, it, it felt like doing nothing was, uh, was the worst and doing something was also, also difficult because I was outside of the country. At, in the beginning, it really felt that way that I couldn't do anything at all. But uh, over time, I began to realize that being outside also meant that I was in a position of relative safety and security that most of my brothers and sisters inside the country are just simply not in. Um, so I decided to pick up the pen again and started to write a little bit, but it also didn't feel like enough because um, just simply covering stories to me, other, a lot of other people inside the country are already doing that, right? Like they're already reporting in a, in a much more concrete way than I ever could just by them being there. And they're incredibly brave for doing so because they're doing it under threat of arrest and torture and under duress as well, because like they have to evade the police. They have to evade capture at all times. So um, I, I put my, um, put my efforts also into like organizing here in France. And like, I got in touch with like the Myanmar community here and we've been working on a lot of advocacy work, um, um, trying to reach out to like senators and like, parliamentarians here in France and uh, pressuring um, oil and gas companies like Total here in, uh, here in the country who have had a really long record of uh, long record of aiding and abetting the Myanmar um, junta to uh, basically giving them all the monetary support that they need in order to sustain themselves. I think, and me, just one of the things when, when you were mentioning, because obviously our, our time in Yangon actually overlaps because um, we were both there from 2017. Um, and mm. Ruth, Ruth you, you left the same time as Nay. Would that be right? Yeah, I left the same time as you. Um, but my mum lived there. Mm. So I think I was there just before you left the first time as well. Um, so basically when the first time that I went, because just listening to you talk and then when I went back like seven years later or something, the changes were just absolutely huge. Um, not just in terms of infrastructure, but just everything. Basically. I mean, the yeah. texture was different, right? Like you yeah. could, you could feel it when the moment you got off the plane, because the airport itself was different. Everything yeah. was different. Yeah. It's a whole new bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's mind blowing, like, because mm. like you were saying, absolutely, you'd see on the surface and living there, you would just feel progress. Um, well, obviously not everyone, but the majority of people's perception of it would be progress. Right. Um, and then obviously, like, you've exact, exactly what you've just said, there was an underlining, I think your words are really good. They were like a, a rotten uh, core to it or something. Um which I don't think you could anyone properly grasped um, outside of outside of Myanmar or inside. Just with, with, with what what Ruth was saying there, and, and it just it struck me like when I was living there, and I in 2017 I was paying fifteen hundred dollars for a two bed apartment in Yangon, mm. <laughs> which was crazy. But also like where I lived, like there was a mosque. There was a Hindu temple and there was a Buddhist monastery all within a stone's throw of me. 
I never like saw any conflict or any issue. Like it's everyone seemed to have religious freedom on the surface to me, just walking down the street, everyone seemed to get along. Um, and even like though the Rohingya, um, I guess genocide of 2017, like we didn't really hear about that from inside. Like the information I guess would have been from family back home asking us about it. Um, but it was relatively like, it wasn't something we really heard of. And again, like somewhere like Rakhine to us was like to me was like what where where is that place like it was just something that we didn't really acknowledge and but when you mentioned those two Reuters journalists like that was in that time I mean that was like looking back like there was huge indications that that like things were not right they were arrested they were detained um and that was under civilian rule I guess you could say um but I guess alarm bells still didn't ring for a lot of people at that time yeah and I think one of the main frustrations for for me at the time was um, sort of actually seeing the 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 symptoms of the illness already, right? Because under under Aung San Suu Kyi, after she won, um, I was still in the I was still in the United States, and I had so many of my friends who were celebrating as if we had we had achieved full democracy. There was no there was no measure of caution that I could see from them and the, the elation and the sort of celebration that was coming and you could see it in the streets, right? Um, you could, if you could, I, I think if you go and go back and find celebrations from 2015, you can sense the, you can sense the sort of the same energy as when Obama won. It's the same, it's the same sort of like, it's the same sort of electricity that you cannot quite describe for someone who probably, I don't know, because growing up, um, it's really difficult to look back now because at the time I felt like everything was okay. Um, But from, from, because I was born in 94 and up until 2010, we were, we were under a military dictatorship and there were certain things that you simply did not say or even think for that matter, right? Like there were simply things that you just weren't taught. You weren't, these were not, these were not things that you could bring up in the street. These were not things that you could, um, question these were not things that you could raise issue about or even raise consciousness about there were there were just certain things that were off limits in a way that you don't even the the thought of beginning to think about the thought wasn't there and it's that's a really difficult thing to describe for someone whose whose main function right now is to attempt to describe these things and attempt to explain these things for the ordinary person. That's my job to, to, to give context and to describe what is going on in the country and to see myself looking back and to know that I grew up under this, like under, under, under that circumstance. And I, I grew up in a very privileged from a very privileged background and to for even someone like me to not have these like sort of basic freedoms that anyone else in most like 
um, free societies have, it's, it's quite frightening because this is where we're going back to, right? Like this is, this is the, this is the same, this is the same, all of, all the, all the hallmarks of like what we had back then are slowly coming back into place. And the only difference I think right now is that we have the internet and this is, you sort of let the cat out of the bag and you just can't put it back in. Like there's, there's no way people notice when an entire country goes off the map. It's just, it's not something that they can afford to do anymore. And they also, they rely on it. It, that's I think that's also another thing that we need to acknowledge is that the internet has integrated itself into all aspects of Myanmar society. And I think that's also one of the big stories that like we we missed is that we didn't these tech companies didn't take any responsibility for the sort of damage that they were gonna cause by entering this market without any sort of it was just I mean the 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 idea that everyone can have a phone people don't question that at all, like ever. <laughs> and I mean, this is not, it's, it's crazy to me because like, of course it's um, on the surface, it's obviously a good thing, but, uh, and also how do you, how do you introduce something like that? Right. Like how do you introduce a device that can give you everything at any point at any time and attempt to teach people how to use it in a responsible manner. Even I don't know how to do that. I mean, I don't know how to do that now. Like I, I'm addicted to my phone. I mean, like to, to put it frankly, I'm addicted to my phone. And you're you're giving the same the same device to a couple million people and then say, let loose with it. And there are all these like underlying issues with the country that just will arise. Like that that's just what that's that's just what's going to happen. So I think one of the main things that we're also witnessing right now is the other flip side to it is that we're, we're also able to leverage all these really good things, right? Like we see all these digital campaigns. We see a revolution that is both physical and digital. And in some cases, like the line is blurred in a way where you can't even tell the difference anymore. Um, it's It's weird because it has given us so much and it also has cost us so much. So I think one of the main things I really want to interrogate too, is like, why is it that, why is it that tech companies aren't taking more, uh, more of a, I don't know, uh, like a guardianship role in this maybe. Uh, I, I think that's, that's a, that's a question that we have to ask as well, but we, we are being plunged back into the same, to the same thing that I felt when I was a kid, you know, like this, this, uh, at the atmosphere of like censorship and uh, repression. And and just when you mentioned the tech companies, like and, and when you were saying earlier about uncensored chi and that kind of elation and everyone, this kind of pretend democracy, do you think that like, you know, in the West, like people just wanted to be done. They wanted, okay, we want to go into Myanmar. There's so much potential. So we'll just accept this kind of pretend, you know, face of democracy like were or were people just naive? Did they really believe that like there was going to be real change? It's a measure of both of those things because um, multinational corporations have never cared about genuine democracy. I think we should get that out of the way because there's a there's a we we pretend we pretend that um, capitalism and these uh, the, the uh, uh, an economic system that's like based on profit 
is will have the interests of people in mind, but it's just it's just not true. And we can see that we don't need uh, we don't need businesses that are for profit for a society to function because Myanmar's economy is taking a nosedive right now. But you are still seeing people being uh, living right, like people forming mutual aid communities for people forming like civil defense, like, uh, like civilian defense organizations, people creating uh, education initiatives that are independent from any private or public. Um. So I think it's a difficult question to answer, but I think, I think people were really wanted to buy into that myth because the symbol of Aung San Suu Kyi is so potent that everyone bought into it, um, myself included. I think the only thing that sort of dispelled that notion is when she was willing to defend, uh, I think, probably the most indefensible crime against humanity, right? The highest crime that anyone can commit, the crime of genocide. She went in front of the ICJ, the UN's highest court, and said that this was in response to um, terrorist like uh, attacks by uh, Islamic extremist terrorists. That may be true that it was provoked by an event like that, but it it obfuscates the fact that there was a lead up to that moment. From 2012 onwards, there were there was an a steady stream of anti-Muslim hate speech rhetoric and propaganda that was coming out from both ordinary people and broadcast over uh, state and public uh, uh, forms of communication. And you also saw a steady escalation of like anti, anti-Muslim hate speech coming from, coming from just all aspects of society that were not reined in in any sort of way. So I think, I think many people realized then that democracy wasn't really wasn't really there. Yet at the same time, I think you people misjudged what the 2008 Constitution really did, and we're seeing the effects of it only now. I mean, I, I saw a, I saw a cartoon a couple of um, I think yesterday that I think looking back now is actually kind of sad and a little poignant because um, it's basically a general holding. Um, hugging a copy of the 2008 constitution and the caption said, who needs a coup when you have this? And I think that's, I think that's perfectly true because one, one of the main reasons why people were so taken aback by the military coup is actually because most of us think that they got the best of both worlds, right? They have a civilian facade that they can sort of offset a lot of these like, uh, the moral responsibility of their actions onto the civilian government. And they also have the economic incentive of being able to do whatever they want and take control of the country's resources with Aung San Suu Kyi in the front and them working in the background. But now all of that is gone and they're just blatantly stating this is what we want to do. And we have specific goals in mind to take control of the country. So I think for sure people were 
duped into thinking that um, the generals actually had any sort of uh, interest in bringing the country outside of uh, their control. But there, to me, there, there's also some indications that this was something that was uniquely from like Mint Online's like uh, from Mint Online's judgment. There, there are indications of that. Like there, are, you you hear through the grapevine that generals do not like some of the generals do not agree with what he did, right? Like so, I don't know. It's it's difficult to say. It's a very it's a very good question, and like I could spend like hours talking about it. But um, really, what I, personally what I think is that like we we needed something like this. We needed a reckoning to really take ourselves out of the sort of like because things were crystallizing to a point where you couldn't even discuss legitimate criticisms against the civilian government openly anymore you know and you were already beginning to see um a society that was content with certain people being um having civil liberties at the expense of others that that is what we were headed headed towards in some ways i'm glad we had this because we would have arrived at this destination 30 years down the line, except it being the NLD being in charge. It could have been that way. Yeah, and do you think like that this, there is it like, I guess a real chance for like, a, you know, a united Myanmar, like a proper federal government? Like, is this the chance to finally end those civil wars that have been happening in the ethnic groups? Is this a real opportunity? Or do you think that's a distant dream? I think it's already kind of happening. Um, it's it's a little because because a revolution is something that's that's difficult to predict um, how it'll pan out. But um, I think the necessary political discussions are happening already, and I th- that's something that we really need to highlight because, like like my point before, all of these political discussions were all but impossible from from 2015 to 2020 it, it was impossible there were there were politicians um right now who are uh, who used to be anti-rohingya who have had to publicly apologize for their stances before there's some that still haven't but uh, some of them have there are um, activists who have received genuine remorse like uh, genuine like remorseful statements from like civilians who used to harass them online for their stances like for criticizing um for criticizing the nld stance on the rohingya issue for instance um there are there's a genuine there's a genuine like want to have these conversations as well i think i think that's the main thing that we need to understand is that there wasn't a willingness before there's a willingness now and i think that shift makes anything possible because without without that shift even if you have the best institutions even if you have the best um sort of judicial system without the people's will there is no way we can move towards a healthier society. I think in many ways, Myanmar was a society that was sick, right? Like we needed a shock to sort of jolt us out of this. Um, There were, we were headed down a path that was extremely, extremely dangerous 
because we were willing to let we as a whole we were willing to let go of expelling almost a million people out of, out of our country without any sense of remorse that's a that's a genocidal society this is not a i'm not making an understatement or an overstatement it's a it's quite literally a fact if you go and you take a look at how things occurred and you take a look at the facts of how this rohingya genocide played out Myanmar was headed towards like towards being allowing more of this to happen again and again and that's the real danger that we we need to we need to fight against um the the there there there's a there's a cat- categorization of the 10 stages of genocide and the last stage is genocide denialism right and genocide denialism is the best indicator that genocide will occur again and that genocide dull violence will be um will be used again to justify or to to towards political like towards political ends right so um the the military is already beginning to exhibit that i mean just yesterday they burned down an entire village this this is not it's it's not it's not a theory it's it's actually happening before our eyes so we need to we need to wake up to the fact that like these tendencies are within us as well i I think that's also one of the main things that i want to highlight is that people are often quick to dismiss like to to dismiss their own guilt in all of this too right i think we have to take responsibility for our collective actions and or inaction when when it comes to stuff like this um actually just oh sorry uncle ruth that that was one thing that I noticed amongst um obviously my bilingual friends on on social media um there were there were apologies and there were apologies that it was kind of like a stark realization when your state news is lying to you and you know it's lying to you because you can look out the window that actually everything that they've been told about the Rohingya and all the information they had been given that was a lie too um and I, I it, it was it was a realization amongst amongst people but obviously that's a limited number of people and it 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 was it was something that that I witnessed in terms of the people that I know anyway. Um, Just Nay in terms of Aung San Suu Kyi because obviously you know she is still very much somebody who gets media attention you know I mean Myanmar was in you know the news here again this this week because her trial has started, even though it's been really difficult to get international news to report on Myanmar um, over the last few months since kind of things have calmed down or I guess less information is coming out. Um, in terms of like, I mean, from talking to people, because a lot of people I know are very like, they love her unconditionally. She is their mother, their ame, you know, and that is without any, no matter what she has done, they will love her forever. And, and, and there is that kind of, we have that with friends and family, like where we will forgive them anything and we, we will still love them um, regardless. But how do, how do people bridge that? How do they, I mean, love her, but accept where she's gone wrong or, or do they need to, I mean, to, to fully understand or for the country to fully move forward? I think there's a, I, I hate to, I hate to say this because it starts to get very psycho analytic-y, but uh, I think there's a a certain degree of self-delusion that comes with it because 
they they cannot fault anything that she does. And even if they can fault anything that she does, they cannot view her as they cannot view her as someone who would be capable of something like this. Because I think for Aung Suu Kyi, she is someone who reflects Myanmar, right? People see see her as a symbol for Myanmar and Myanmar democracy. And if she's compromised, then we are compromised. And Myanmar's transition is compromised. And our ultimate goals might be compromised. But I think the, the degree of symbolic investment in her takes away the struggles of other common people who have given just as much, if not more, compared to her. The most common um, criticism levied against the people who do criticize her is, have you sacrificed as much as her? That's the question they ask. Have you, have you done as much for Myanmar as she has? And for me personally, no. I mean, of course not. I mean, I cannot possibly... There's, there's not even... I don't think I could find a parallel universe where I could possibly bridge that gap but the 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 personal sacrifices she's made in the service of our country there's there's just no one can take that away from her however there are other people in the movement who have and who don't get the same sort of recognition that she does and i think the singular focus on her detracts from the the idea that like the uh, uh, the struggle for democracy isn't won by any single person, right? Like, and it's a it's a to me it's a misunderstanding of who actually gets things done, who actually moves things. It's it's thinking that um, Martin Luther King Jr. was the person who move the civil rights like uh, movement and moved everyone to accept like broader liberties for uh, black people in the United States. I mean, he did a lot, but you're forgetting, you're forgetting Malcolm X. You're forgetting um, all the people who cooked for him, all the people who drove him, all the people who organized these, the buses the freedom buses, people who sat in the diners. You're forgetting all of these people who put their bodies on the line in front of white supremacists in order to fight. And it's the same. It's the same sort of, it's a misunderstanding of how history actually occurs because people don't, like democracies, like don't happen because a single person says that it should happen. And the crazy thing to me is, I think she understands that. Right. If you listen carefully to her interviews, she has never, ever claimed that she's the person who is going to actually bring this about. She always says the people are going to do it. The people are going to do it. And it's the people who place this sort of confidence in her that I think it's it's really it's really difficult to it's really difficult to pinpoint exactly how. To, to what degree we have this 
culture of like hero worship in Myanmar, like even even in even in this revolution. Is that down to like, do you think Western media plays a role in that? Because, you know, they had a symbol, a person they could point to, you know, uh, and, and they kind of drove this Aung San Suu Kyi story. And, and I feel like because I, I'm being met with, with a lot of resistance, especially, if, you know, we speak to people about the NUG and they're, they're like, oh, any government where she is part of it, you know, we don't want anything to do with it. And again, uh, these are the same people who want democracy. And I'm like, well, it's the will of the people. And if they choose her, that's democracy, whether we agree. But also, I feel like it seems kind of personal, like a lot of people invested into her personally. You know, maybe they've got a photo hanging in their house when they met her, like diplomats, people, and they feel like personally, like let down by her. And I think they've lost sight of the 54 million people who need their help and still need their help and have always needed their help. And mm-hmm. um, we do need to move the conversation like away from this one person for sure. It's a it's an interesting question you ask about like the Western media focus as well, because it has been going on for as long as she's been a politician. Um, since she stepped into the the limelight in uh, in the in the late eighties, it's been awesome as synonymous with Myanmar's democracy, right? The, the, the lady is, it's when you say that people understand who she is. People who probably can't find Myanmar on a map knows who she is. And I think um, it's the Western media's inability to properly uh, tell stories about countries outside of, of the West as well. Um, we're beginning to see um, alternative media coming up, especially in Asia, right? Like just um, that cover Asia specifically for uh, for a Western audience. Like uh, I'm thinking of New Bloom coming out of like Taiwan, New Narrative coming out of like Southeast Asia. These these publications that attempt to tell a Southeast Asian story in in the terms of like Southeast Asians. Um, and these stories are about democracy, human rights, and uh, the people's will. But when it comes to, for example, like if you look at a Time magazine cover of Aung San Suu Kyi, that's, it's, it's so singularly focused on her and like what she's going through that I think it's a good entry point for a beginner. But for people who really want to understand the country, it's uh, like you said, it, it might be that Western media have focused a little bit too much on covering her and her only for so long that it's, it's like, it's so difficult to move past from that. I think, I, I don't know, because this is something that we keep running into, because like you said, it is the will of the people that they want, they want her to lead. But then at the same time, like when um, you have you have a culture where you cannot criticize her or you cannot bring up legitimate concerns about her leadership style or her policies, then it doesn't become um, a people's leader, but it becomes someone who who cannot be touched and it's it's very difficult to envision a healthy democracy when you cannot criticize your own pol- like politicians. At least that's the way I view it. I personally think that if you cannot cultivate a healthy atmosphere of criticism for your leaders, you're sliding further and f- further into authoritarianism. Even if you have 
elections every year. It's still not, <laughs> it's still not a healthy democracy. You know, we're, we're beginning to see like transformations in like uh, our, our society to push back against like these sexist attitudes as well. But I mean, this is all part of just how this is all just part of how Myanmar just loves to uphold a sort of male dominated Amman Buddhist um, like privileged position, right? Like this is, this is the way our society is set up. If you just take a look at um, our media, if you take a look at our politics, if you take a look at like who gets to say what it's mainly men who are, uh, predominantly Bamar and predominantly Buddhists who speak Burmese. Like this is, this is the way it is. Um, it, you get extra brownie points if you can also speak English well. That's, that's, it's, 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 uh, it's, that's more of a function of like uh, the, the, the dominance of like U.S. culture and uh, U.S. cultural imperialism. But especially in Myanmar, if you have all of these things, then you are seen as someone who has authority. Take a look at Seyatamyeu, for example, right? Like he is someone who everyone around the world knows as a respectable historian who speaks Burmese, who um, speaks um, who speaks English really well, and comes from a very highly regarded family. And he dresses and presents as a Buddhist Bama man. Seyatamyeu is the perfect example of who gets to say what and who is seen as an authority in Myanmar society. Aung San Suu Kyi is a unique example because she is all of these things except she's a woman. And that also is like a huge threat to like the generals as well. It's a it's an interesting case because she also draws a lot of power from like her dad. Mm. I was going to say she's the daughter of a strong male. So obviously Exactly. Exactly. And she she really like relies on that like connection in order to um, because like part of the reason why she was even chosen in the first place was because she was her father's daughter. Right. Like Yangon University historians like um, history professors went to her house and like said, like tried to convince her to join. She went back to treat her mom like this. She didn't choose to go back for Myanmar in the beginning, right? She she was convinced to join. And I'm sure there was a certain part of her who ha- that has always been interested in politics because of her family's history, because of her studies, because of who, um, what, like her, what she had focused on when she was in Oxford as well. But so, yeah, it's, it's a really, it's, there's there are so many things we need to take care of there are so many things we need to take care of and And it's where do we start like where do where should people start or i mean people have already started but i mean there's so many things at once and it's like it needs to narrow focus and then build and build Mm -hmm. i think i think like anything you need to start with your own you start with your own you start with your friends and your family like anything else every movement starts like that you cannot expect to you cannot expect to be a community organizer if you can't even move the people who trust you the most if you cannot if you cannot move um the people that you grew up with or the community community that you're in then you're 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 stuck because um who else is gonna listen to you first 
Um, you can also begin to um, educate yourself about Myanmar history um, without without falling into. I, th- I think the best sort of uh, rule of thumb for me is to see whether or not what you are learning serves who 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 does it serve, right? Like if you if you are reading history and then it happens to serve the generals a lot, then you need to really consider what type of history that you're reading. If it serves um, corporate interests a lot, then you need to really think about like why is it you're you're reading only histories that serve corporate interests. You need to really examine the sort of materials that you are like exposing yourself to. Um, third is to really work with yourself as well. I think all of these are tied together, of course, but without, without you really examining like the sort of root um, causes of like why you act the way that you act right this is this is going into sort of like more like self-improvement like personal development territory but for me personally like if i am if i cannot treat the women in my life with like dignity and uh, mutual respect it's hard pressed for me to go out and preach to other people about treating women in general with like dignity and like mutual respect it's very difficult because you yourself are um i want to say compromised because you yourself cannot act these act out these values um i've it's it's a it's a difficult it's a difficult thing to to suggest to other people what exactly works for them but for me like it 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 helps uh, have these conversations and to to have these like um, discussions with people who are like-minded and people who want the same same uh, goals as you Uh, the what about the people in Myanmar now who have no money who do not know where their next meal is coming from who are trying so hard to hang in there and you know do cdm um but you know they're facing pressure i mean just the other day i saw maybe it was even yesterday like they couldn't find two activists so they took his one of their the mom and seven-year-old uh, brother i mean it's it, it as you've said we've seen these tactics time and time again this is not new this is what the military have done for decades um They've arrested anyone who may have potentially have a voice, who may be able to reach a large number of people, influencers, makeup artists, actors, actresses, poets, doctors, um, politicians, everyone. But also people are living in in a sense of fear where they're afraid to have even a thought about what they might think about something, as you were saying, which you have experienced in the past. So what, what do they do? How do they hang on? How do they keep going? It's... It's um, it's a very difficult question because, especially for for me, like being outside of the country, it, it there's a tremendous amount of like there's a tremendous amount of guilt because I I always I always think about I always think about that I, that's that's always something that I'm wondering about how do how do these people survive and uh, 
I mean, they have they have the answer, and that is through a genuine desire for something better for future generations. I mean, I mean, this is the thing that's keeping everyone going. Uh, people are finding uh, hope in like the the most unusual places, right? Like you you are you you cannot you cannot. Um, you cannot have a genuine revolution if you cannot have hope. And I think people are really good at creating situations where you can draw strength from one another. Uh, the best example is the uh, banging of the pots, uh, because to me, that's such a simple act that can give energy to anyone who hears it with an earshot or even see a video or hear a recording of it. I mean, I, I, the first time I heard the banging of the pots, I was moved to tears and it's not a sound I've ever heard ever before. I've never heard a city bang like metal pots against like just a wall or something. I've never heard that before in my life, but there's a quality to it that shows collective solidarity that I think is the main source of hope for everyone um cdm is a another expression of that the the expression of genuine uh, a genuine desire for uh, a better society for a federal democracy that moves past all of these different issues that we've been speaking about all, all of all of the things that we've talked about sexism racism like um oppression all of these things are 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 going to be moved aside. Like we need to dismantle all of these different things. And I, you, you can see it within, you can see it within these like expressions of like solidarity between people. And this is where people draw the hope from. We cannot do much from outside except um, project, project their voices and project their stories. When, when you were mentioning how these two activists were, being or being like um, targeted and instead they took their families or their friends it's that's the t that's the type of stuff that makes me really wonder like how do we even move on because they will stop at nothing to break our spirit but it's um but i think that's also precisely another sign that you you see that these these terroristic thugs are out of options. They have no, they have no authority. They have no legitimacy. They have no claim to any semblance of, um, any claim to be able to rule the country. And it's, it's just so, it's so sad that they have to resort to these tactics but it's also a good sign because we have pushed them into this corner that they cannot get out of. Um, they are quite literally, they're quite literally cornered by people who have nothing, you know, like we, we have homemade guns and um, like makeshift Molotov cocktails fighting against like actual weapons of war. It's, it's not a fair fight at all. And somehow we're holding on. So I think, I think it's very difficult to um, look at it from the outside and just be like, 
a it looks it looks really difficult for um, for them to win because it does feel like that a lot of the time. I mean, there's there's so much analysis coming out right now trying to compare like the the firepower of the military versus like the firepower of like the uh, People's Defense Force, the PDF, and like civilian defense like organizations. And yeah, I mean, all of this is important because we need to take an actual realistic accounting of like guns and bullets and um, manpower and all that for sure i mean this is just this is what the, the these are the logistics of war that we need to consider but back to the question that you were asking it's like where do we where, how, how do we actually like help these people it's it's just simply just like projecting their stories and really listening to what they are saying i think that's the key thing that we can do as outs- outsiders is to bear witness is to look look at what they're um, look at what is really going on and like if we can, you know, end total while we're at it, like that would be a bonus. <laughs> oh yeah, that'll be that'll be great. <laughs> um, it's it's um it's a sorry it's it's a sorry like affair because like they they've been at it for since the nineties, you know, like <laughs> they've been there for a while. <laughs> um, they've been there since before I was born. I have uh, I've met activists who've been fighting against total before I was born, and it wow. it's very humbling to me because. Um, and is there any way like we can like can we buy like do we know other companies or products they're affiliated with that we could like not use or like is there anything we can do to kind of like, I mean, people are people are beginning to collect that information justice for Myanmar does a really good job uh, Burma campaign for UK has a uh, has a dirty list these are these are good attempts to map out exactly what interests we need to target but I mean, the fact of the matter is um, these multinational corporations are all interlinked with one another and they've made it so that like um, mutual funds and like pri- uh, what's that um, pension funds are reliant on their profits in order to be able to pay um, people like pay for people. Right. Like, for example, uh, in Norway, one of their largest like pension funds relies on Total and Chevron. I mean, like this. This is just one example of of, of um, the complicity of all of these all of these different like moneyed interests, and you you just have to. One of the main things that made me like feel kind of hopeless in the beginning was realizing that the fight for Myanmar is also a fight against all these really powerful like. Um, interests in uh in in these multinational corporations and these are the same these are the same people that are burning fossil fuels at a rate that we are we're just driving like full speed ahead towards the cliff without like i mean we're experiencing it in the weather uh we're experiencing it in uh in just just seeing like these really extreme weather events like ram into like our like our continents like every every year more and more frequently with more like with more force it's it's uh it's it's a really uphill battle that we have to climb i I think another thing that it, it taught me is that like i cannot just be an activist for myanmar anymore right like it's it's all the same fight everywhere everywhere it's all the same fight i think the multi alliance is a recognition of that i think um we are also beginning to form um 
connections to like Colombia and Palestine as well, because these are all, all the same fight against structures of power that do not have the interests of people at heart. Um, it's also really difficult because we are um, we are just we're just people, right? And these are governments with guns and these are governments with like lobbying power and connections that extend far beyond what any individual one of us can achieve. But if we all just like put our heads together and like try to do stuff, it, it, it becomes, it becomes like, it moves things in a way that um, is sometimes surprising and very moving too, because like you, you see, for example, the, there was a, there was a guy in, um, in Hong Kong who made a sculpture of uh, Angel Jezin. Um, the 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 young the young eighteen uh, year old girl who was shot in nineteen year old girl who was shot in Mandalay with the shirt everything will be okay, and um, he made a sculpture with like with her in that t shirt but also wearing like the sort of headgear and goggles that were emblematic of like the Hong Kong protests as well. So we're we're seeing we're seeing this like this we're seeing all these connections like come together. We don't know what what it will result in for sure. I mean like who knows because it's like all digital right but there are we're beginning to see like physical representations of that for example uh multi-alliance protests like happening together for example like that's a that's a physical representation of that but if if we are able to sort of echo and play off each other and like be able to speak for each other in our respective countries right like because as hong kong is becoming less and less able to have free political expression. Um, other countries can't speak up for Hong Kong, right? Like that's, that's the potency of having these transnational like alliances. So um, yeah. I, How do we all a, do that? Like without falling out? <laughs> I mean, the, the thing with activists and, and, mm. and movements is that, everyone is striving for like perfection and we need every, but like no mm. country is perfect. No government is perfect. And it, mm-hmm. it almost feels like an unrealistic, you know, expectation mm-hmm. that we're going to have a perfect Myanmar government. We're going to, everything is going to be wonderful. I mean, there's always got, there's people I don't like on our government. Like that's, that's like, right. oh, I don't want them to be arrested or detained or tortured, but you know, right. there has to be a little, I, I guess, give and take. I mean, we, we can strive for perfection, but surely we have to settle for, something a little more real i think um that's it's 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 difficult to speak about um realism i guess right right now when everyone's in this revolutionary sphere but i i certainly take your point um about about what you're mentioning because there has to be a point where we have to come to the the negotiating table with um, the generals if we want all this bloodshed to end because what it amounts to is like there's half a million people in Myanmar who are a part of the armed forces, right? Um, what is the what is the ultimate end goal? Is it for all, for us to detain them all? That's that's highly um, logistically difficult and probably like impossible. Let's let's just say it's logistically impossible. Um, are we going to kill them all? No. That's that's inhumane and also another genocide. 
um, that are we going to expel them from the country? That's also like a logistical like impossibility because who's going to take them? So at the end of the day, what we have left on the table, the only option is to actually negotiate with these people and somehow integrate them back into society so that we can all live together. And that's, I think it's a difficult thing to reconcile when you're, you're being fed a steady amount of um, stories about how brutal these people can be. And you begin to see them as less than human because of all these horrible things that they're not, they, they can't be capable of. But we need to remember that Nazis were normal human beings too, right? Like we, we need to remember that. It's, it's difficult to reconcile these two things, but people who were part of the Nazi party never pulled a trigger or to kill another Jewish person or another like disabled person or a gypsy, yet they were allowing for these atrocities to occur. That's the thing that we need to reconcile. And that's the thing that we need to, um, we need to lay bare, right. Through justice efforts, through like truth and reconciliation. This is the thing that we need to like figure out together. Um, but like you said, like wh- what is the what is the balance between um, reality and um, the, uh, an ideal society? I, I don't know. It's it's difficult. It's it's definitely difficult because. Um, but people will settle on that eventually. They have to because there's no there's no other alternative. We are, after all, it it is a human affair and those are gray and messy and difficult to disentangle into like neat bits. It's, it's, it's crazy to me to, to have this conversation with you guys, because like I'm beginning to realize the amount of work that we have. ahead of us. (laughs) It's it's really, it's really like overwhelming sometimes. When you try and see the the bigger picture or the end point, it it does become slightly overwhelming, doesn't it? No doubt. No doubt. Um, I, I, I like try to focus on just like the day to day. And it, even that is like, can be overwhelming on, on a day to day basis. It's uh, yeah, it's something it's, it's, it's quite something I never quite expected to be when I was younger. And I thought about like um, what I wanted to do with my life. This is not at all how I pictured it to be. Like, it's just like, it's just so bizarre. I don't know when I'm going to see my mom and dad again my brother again my family again like my friends Uh, every almost every single person i know is in the country you know like it's it's really weird to to not know when i'm gonna go back and to not know whether like my country is gonna be okay and the people in my life are gonna be okay it's just it's such a surreal feeling and i i don't know um i don't know if I can even attempt to explain it to people the sort of like the, 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 the flurry of emotions that you get every time you talk about this, it rain, it ranges from like feeling dejected to feeling like incredibly hopeful and then feeling like <clears throat> um, really inspired and feeling really overwhelmed, feeling really sad, feeling really happy. Like it's all this entire range of feelings that are just jam packed into desire to to want just like ordinary lives you know without luxury without 
excess, just normal functioning lives for people. That's all, that's all we're asking for. It's not, it is sometimes it feels like it's a lot to ask these guys to like stop killing us because you just keep doing it with such a efficient regularity that it's like, it's, it's quite, it's quite shocking. It's like, do you worry, Nate, that your activism and, and your writing is putting people you know in danger? That it might? Do you think, does that worry you? I think in the beginning, yes. But I'm also beginning to realize that uh, there are people in the country that they're looking for and that they're preoccupied with looking for that I think like I'm so far away from what, what they want, I think, um, or the type of person that they want. I, I thought about this a lot in the beginning, whether or not I should write with a pseudonym or or anything like that. But I th- personally, I felt to put my name and my voice and my face out there would be a lot more effective than to have this sort of faceless, voiceless person writing articles, right? Like to me, me being able to show my face and say, hey, I'm someone from this country who's speaking out about this consistently since the beginning until this ends for however long it takes. To me, that sends a much more powerful message than someone who is worried about their own safety or like their own family safety as well. Because I, my parents are, they're very politically inactive. They have never stepped outside of the sort of limited bounds of what is acceptable within like our own family's expectations and society's expectations um so they are relatively safe my brother is politically not active as well so i i would find it very hard pressed that i would i would be so important that they would go after them i I would find it like I would find it shocking, in fact, if they actually decided to do so. We did discuss briefly before we decided that we were going to do the podcast. And we said, you know, this might mean we're never allowed to go back to Myanmar. Like it could literally mean like, and I, like, are we yes. okay with that? Are we okay that we may never <laughs> go back there? Um, it, it's a hard thought because again, like our, our friends are there. Um, Ruth is a Letway fanatic. And if she thought she would never get to do Letway again in Myanmar, mm. I think... But um, I guess you just don't know with the military. I mean, you know, we have to assume that, yeah, they could well put our names on a little list one day and we're never allowed yeah. entry. Um, but I guess we see an end maybe optimistically and we hope that there's a future where there is no military running the country. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what we're all pushing for and, and working towards. It's just not going to be overnight. And I guess we yep. just have to keep going like when COVID is gone and everyone's lives are back to normal and we don't have hours and hours to dedicate to this. I, I hope people can keep going, you know. Yeah. Um, I guess that's what we're trying to do is just keep the conversation going because we can't get the media to, to write about it every day. It just the news is too fast. There's too many things happening. So mm-hmm. I mean, this is our way of, of hopefully getting people to listen who, who want to know more um, and get voices out there. And also to kind of give hope to those still in Myanmar that people like you are out here and you're fighting really hard for them because they don't know that unless we tell them, you know? Um, So when I say, Oh, you know, there was a protest in Dublin on Saturday, people like, wow. Oh my goodness. Like, you know, but like, they don't know that they're not getting that news. 
So it's yeah. important that, you know, we keep them updated too on, on what people are doing so that they can they yeah. can have that hope. But um, we'll leave it there. So thanks so much, Nate, for your time. Yeah, no worries. Of course, of course. Thank you guys for uh, being interested and listening to me and doing this podcast. It's, uh, it's going to be cool. I'm excited to hear what the other speakers have to say as well. Thank Thanks you. Thank you so much, Nate. Bye. Bye. Lovely to meet you. Bye-bye. Lovely to meet you too. Bye. Thank you for listening to RNR Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at RNR Podcast. Spelled A-H-N-A-H. Please like, follow and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.